Ladies and gentlemen, please notice that exits are conveniently located at the front and rear of this auditorium. When leaving the theater, we suggest that the exit at the front of the auditorium will allow you easier access to the parking areas. Thank you. Stop your slow clap. <laughs> why, are you, why are you from Texas now? Because uh, I got to choose my stock. How's that for high energy? That's false advertising. <laughs> no. Oh, come on. Does every actor that portrays a cop in a movie have to wear a fedora? You heard it here, folks. Mike Field <laughs> is dead inside. I'm actually trying to figure out who Brooklyn Decker's married to. Nice. What? She doesn't like, say it like she that. Does like she does say it like that. She doesn't say it like that. stupid. Cowards. Cowards is what they're called, Mike. They're called cowards. Hello, I'm Michael Field. Oh, that's bad. Hang on. <laughs> Hello, I'm Mike Field. And I'm Mike Butler. And you're listening to the Forgotten Cinema Podcast. Each episode, we highlight a film that, for a variety of reasons, was forgotten by audiences. Whether it's because a more popular movie was released at the same time, or the movie simply didn't catch on with an audience in its initial run. We'll discuss what we love about the movie, or perhaps don't love about it, but we'll always recommend you revisit it. If you enjoy our podcast, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. What's going on? No, not what's going on. <laughs> yes, we are doing the 1985 movie Brazil. Someone ask, why do you think this is forgotten? Lots of people know this movie, and I would argue not a lot of people know this movie. Butler, what's it about? Oh, my getting right into it. God. That's a lot quicker than I was expecting. Well, what, you think I'm just going to go off on a tangent? Let me tell you about my 1985. <laughs> <laughs> You're going off on why it was forgotten, and then all of a sudden it's like, but no, let's talk about the I movie. was teasing. That's called Woo. in the business, Butler. Woo, it's called hold on, all right. teasing. Let me get ready. Go right, for I'm it. I'm ready. All right. Go for it. So Brazil is about Sam Lowry, played by Jonathan Price, who is a hairy technocrat in a futuristic society that is needlessly convoluted and inefficient. He dreams of a life where he can fly away from technology and overpowering bureaucracy and spend eternity with the woman of his dreams. While trying to rectify the wrongful arrest of one Harry Buttle, Lowry meets the woman he is always chasing in his dreams, Jill Layton. Meanwhile, the bureaucracy has fingered him responsible for a rash of terrorist bombings, and Sam and Jill's lives are put in danger. Eh. It's, uh, it's, it's quite, let's be honest, it's a real difficult movie to explain to people, I would yes. think. Um, and when you watch it, you probably there is moments where you're going, what is happening? I don't understand. Right. Uh, one of my notes before we'll get I'll get into the stuff I usually get into. Obviously, one of my major notes is that this movie, you need to watch this more than once. Yes, you see it once. Oh, that's great. But you really need to watch it a couple times to kind of maybe understand things you didn't you missed or there's, there's just a lot of stuff in this movie that you you could miss with one viewing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So the movie Brazil was released on December 18th, 1985. That is a Wednesday and has a runtime of 132 minutes. It's rated R production budget of $15 million. It's opening weekend. It did 30,000. Woo. Domestic total. It did 9.9 million worldwide. 9.9. So I think that's combined. Now it was, this may sound familiar to you, when I start telling you the other movies that were around the same time, because we did a movie that came out the week before this. Do you remember? I don't remember, but I know it's the reason why we put this on the list. Is it? We started talking about it. Ah, right. So what I'm movie I'm talking about is clue. 
All right. Yes. Okay. So this movie came out on the 18th, the 13th, which is the week before or the Friday before, excuse me, you had the Jewel of the Nile, Clue, and then the limited release of Chorus Line. The 20th, which was two days after this, obviously, was the 101 Dalmatians re-release, the Robert Redford movie Out of Africa, Enemy Mine, and a wide release of A Chorus Line, plus a limited release of The Color Purple. And then you had on Christmas, the 25th, you had a limited release of Revolution, which was an Al Pacino movie about the American Revolution. Never heard of it. And I was like, interesting. I kind of am interested now. Uh, I don't know. Maybe the fact that we never heard of it, maybe it wasn't as great, but I still kind of want to see it. I'm going to follow George Washington across that Delaware River. Who's with me? Hoo-ah! Here come the Redcoats. Every time I try to get out of the colonies, they pull me back in. You want, you want to know why you let the Redcoats go past the, uh, past the line? Because you got a big ass and your head is all the way up it. You want to be taxed forever? Let me ask you a question real quick. I hurt my voice doing the Al Pacino from Heat. <laughs> Listen, now that I sat down and talked to you, British soldiers, I don't want to have to hunt you down. I don't want to have to come after you. <laughs> Listen, Ben McDonald, I knew it was you. <laughs> you can't even get me to the line. I can't even get to it. <laughs> All right. So anyways, we're doing Brazil. <laughs> Now we got to put this on the list. <laughs> what revolution? Yes. I don't even know what it's about. I have no idea. It doesn't if matter. It's good. We're writing it ourselves. <laughs> um. Oh my god, my head hurts. <laughs> All right, so revol- revolution. So, so I'm just gonna start talking about revolution now. Uh, Brazil ha- was produced by NBC International Pictures and Brazil Productions. I just assume is uh, Terry Gilliam. Uh, distributed by Universal Pictures in the U.S. and Canada and <laughs> distributed by 20th Century Fox internationally. So it's a split distribution directed by Terry Gilliam, which I know I just said previously. Mr. Gilliam has directed movies Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Time Bandits, The Meaning of Life, Adventures of Baron Munchausen, The Fisher King, Twelve Monkeys, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. He's also wrote most of those. This movie, I believe, is the first movie he did after his "quote unquote" split with the Monty Python troupe. Where okay. To, so this is, I, th- I think, this is the first movie. I, I could be wrong there. And I please, was surprised I didn't see any real Monty Python. Just, just Michael Palin. Yeah, just him. Yeah. He's the only one. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I did. Maybe I should have went into it. I don't know if it was a amicable split or anything like that, or just he wanted to move on to other things. I'm not sure. So Gilliam wrote this movie. He also wrote it as an uncredited rewrite because he wrote this the a uh, couple of his versions of the script uh, with Charles Charles Alverson Alverson, excuse me. But then he like denied it later. Like Gilliam denied it, and then someone said, "No, no, no, he did do it." Then he had to admit it. It was weird. I don't <laughs> know. So he that's an uncredited right. Tom Stoppard came on and he to work with it. Tom Stoppard has won an Oscar for Shakespeare in Love. He also wrote Empire of the Sun and A Corinna. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead and Enigma. Have you seen Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? You might like I know that. of the play. Oh, you've Rosencrantz. never seen the movie? You've seen the movie? I've never seen the movie. Yeah, like I have it. written the screen. I've read the script. You like it. I I'm think, sure I, I like think you the, would like the I like movie. the yeah. screenplay or the right. uh, script. And then um, Charles McCown came on to write some more stuff for the movie. Uh, he wrote Plunkett and McLean, Ripley's Game. And he also, McCown played Lime in this movie. Um, he, the guy that is the, mm-hmm. his next name, the yeah. Shane of the Desk. Yeah. Cinematography by Roger Pratt. He was nominated for an Oscar for The End of the Affair. He also did Chocolat, uh, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. He also as well did 12 Monkeys, composed by Michael Kamen, a very famous Michael Kamen, who passed away in 2003. 
He was nominated for an Oscar for Don Juan DeMarco and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, the uh, so for some two songs in those movies, not just the score. Uh, he also did X-Men and he did the Band of Brothers series, which is awesome. Yes. Produced by Arnon Milchin. He was nominated for an Oscar for L.A. Confidential, The Revenant, and Twelve Year, and he also did 12 Years a Slave. And edited by Julian Doyle, who has edited Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, Love Potion, and The Meaning of Life. The cast, as you will, not a... I think there's a there's pretty big cast. Jonathan Price plays Sam Lowry, as Mike said earlier. He was nominated for an Oscar for The Two Popes recently, which is actually a pretty good movie. I like that. I liked him in that. He also, his first, one of his first roles was Something Wicked This Way Comes. He was also in Evita. Tomorrow Never Dies, Butler. I know you're a uh, Bond guy. Yes. Not a <laughs> Tomorrow Never Dies guy, which actually, Tomorrow Never Dies gets a lot of crap. It's actually not the worst. It's, um, it's, it's, it's okay. It's very 90s. It is very 90s. Very 90s. But Bond. it's not bad. Like that, I always remember the ship and the, it's not like a ship. It's like a little mini sub. It's a submarine. It's a yeah. stealth sub. Yeah. I do like the way he goes out in that movie, though. Because oh. because James Bond puts him on the puts him on, like take, taps into the wall and puts the missile that had the grinders on it to grind through holes. Right. And he just shoves it into the guy's face. It's the most like direct James <laughs> Bond kill where he's not like indirectly blowing him up far away. Yeah. He's literally watching his face get chopped up by these choppers. <laughs> you want to be the, you want the news? Why don't you be the news? Price <laughs> is also in Ronin along with Robert De Niro, who I'll get to. Uh, he's in Glengarry Glen Ross, which is an awesome movie. And some people might remember him as the father of Elizabeth in the pirates movies. I don't know who this guy is. Jonathan Price. Uh, no, I thought we were on Robert De Niro. I, I no. just, Robert I De Niro. Not, not, now I'm on Robert <laughs> De Niro. He plays Harry Tuttle. Uh, Robert. I mean, I really wish people would know who Robert De Niro is, but if you don't know, I, no clue. If I've you never don't know, guy. he's won an Oscar for The Godfather Part Two. He also won an Oscar in Raging Bull. These are both acting Oscars. He was nominated for an Oscar for Taxi Driver, The Deer Hunter, Awakenings, Cape Fear, and Silver Linings Playbook. So clearly, he's uh, he's a pretty good actor. Oh my god, I gotta check out some of these. Films. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Catherine Hellman plays Ida Lowry, Sam Lowry's mother. Uh, she passed away last year, 2019. I know her as Mona from Who's the Boss TV show. She's also mm-hmm. in Overboard. She's in TV show Soap, and she played Lizzie in Cars, the um the older car, and uh, I believe the one that. Like the one that her husband died who owned the town. I did not know that. I think so, yeah. Ian Holm is in this. He plays Mr. Kurtzman. He is Bilbo Baggins from the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbits movies, all of them. Mm-hmm. He was nominated for an Oscar for Chariots of Fire, and he was in The Fifth Element. Bob Hoskins, who passed away way too soon, 20, 2014. He plays Spore. He is from Who Framed Roger Rabbit and Mermaids, and he was nominated for an Oscar for Mona Lisa. He wasn't nominated for uh, Mario Brothers movie? No, no not <laughs> at all. I, I, you know what's funny is I was going to put it in there, then I was like, Butler will bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Palin plays Jack Lint. He's obviously part of the Monty Python troupe, which we talked about before. He's in A Fish Called Wanda, which is an awesome movie. And he's in a movie called The Death of Stalin, which just came out a couple years ago. Have you seen this movie? No. You should see this movie. It's very, very funny. I recommend it. It didn't come out wide in theaters. It was just an HBO movie or whatever. You should see that movie. Yes, sir. Very funny. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ian Richardson plays Mr. Warren. He was in the BBC version of House of Cards. He played the Frank character that uh, Kevin Spacey did f- in the American version. He's also from Dark City and From Hell. He passed away in 2007. Peter Vaughn, who passed away in 2016, is Mr. Helpman. He was in the 1971 version of Straw Dogs, which you may know of as Master Eamon from Game of Thrones. He's also in The Razor's Edge. I'm also very surprised you didn't throw Jonathan Price's Game of Thrones. Eh, in there. Um, because Jonathan Price, listen, he's fine in Game of Thrones and I like him, but 
Uh, I don't know. He's well. They they both have a Game of Thrones connection. That's why I'm surprised you didn't. Peter Vaughn is his master name, and I think is more popular than all the other stuff that he has done. Whereas Jonathan Price has been a lot more bigger things. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why. I mean, like people probably know Price honestly from the Pirates movies from playing the father. That's I'm telling you right now. Nowadays, yes, that's what I'm saying now. But I remember him from Evita. Like he was in Evita with Madonna. He was like the 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 husband. Right. Yeah. Whatever. But you should watch him in the Two Popes if you like popes. <laughs> if you like, if you like popes, who doesn't? Kim, I don't know how you say her last name. Kim Greist or Greist plays Jill Layton. She was in Manhunter, Throw Mama from the Train, Chud, and House Guest. She's actually from Connecticut, Butler. Ooh, why don't we have her on the podcast right now? To talk about. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> Jim Broadbent is Doctor Jaffe. He was not. He won an Oscar for his role in Iris. He was also in Topsy Turvy, Moulin Rouge, and of course, the ever popular Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, excuse me. <laughs> I don't know why he's smiling. It's good. Shut up. So, anyways, that's the cast. I ran through who was in it, who's in it. Butler told you what it's about. And we're going to tell you what we thought about it, which, quite honestly, if we sit here and tell you that we didn't like it, you should probably turn off the podcast, never listen to us again, because we clearly don't understand what we're talking about. Right, Butler? Did you like it? Ugh. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. This movie's really good. <laughs> it is, of course. That, that goes without saying. Let's I want to, you know, before we get into the movie, why don't we get into why we think it's forgotten first? Because this is a kind of a tough sell one. And I know why you wanted to do it because you had not seen it. Yeah. We talked about yep. it and, and it was you, you wanted to watch it. And I know you don't watch movies unless they're on the podcast. Essentially. So, <laughs> so why do you think maybe I could I have ideas, but why do you think it's forgotten? Listen, I'm a I'm a film guy. Not only am I a film guy, but I went to film school I, or I went to a university where I learned film and acting. And thank you. I'm slow clapping. It's, it's not a brag. It's not a humble <laughs> brag. I'm saying I went to school and it, it was a good school. And we watched some very popular movies and we dissected them. But I never watched Brazil. And Brazil is always talked about when you talk about people who really know film that are older than me. Sure. And oh, Brazil's great. Brazil's great. But I don't think anybody really my age, even who likes film that much, has really seen Brazil. Unless maybe they were told you've got to watch. Here's this film. You got to watch it. I've just heard people talk about it when they talk about cinema when they talk about stories when they talk about symbolism and stuff like that so i knew a lot of that stuff was in this film Mm -hmm. but i didn't really know a lot about it and i had never seen it it's not easily available no and so and it's by terry gilliam who has made some very good movies and is part of one of the most successful comedy troops of all time Mm -hmm. and it's like why isn't this more wide widely available why isn't this being taught in classes and it's i really wanted to see it as someone who's really into film, and I would recommend anyone who's really into film to watch this. But I think maybe it's forgotten because it's so obscure. But well, I, I am also confused because the message is so time. I think it's always time. That kind of message is always going to be with us yeah. that it's trying to give out. And it's just really odd to me that it's just not widely talked about unless you're really in a like a really kind of filmy kind of circle. I think it's a filmmaker movie. Yeah, I think it's a movie that somebody who just watches movies who doesn't really, you know, I don't want to be uh, snooty. I don't because right. I don't I, like I, snobs. I get where you're going. I, get, uh, I don't yeah. want to be a snob, you know, but I can understand somebody who's not really into film, not digging the movie because it's it is it is a little weird. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that just because you're into movies or into film and you like Brazil doesn't mean you're better than anybody else. It just means you kind of understand some of the concepts a little bit better. Uh, then, then maybe, or maybe most people care to, they don't, you know, they're just not interested in that. So right. listen, people watch movies for many different reasons. You don't have to watch movies the way we watch movies. I mean, I know people love horror movies because they love horror movies. They love everything about horror and that is fine. That is great. Right. 
you get what you want out of your movies. Just because you like horror and someone doesn't doesn't mean they're wrong and you're wrong. We talk about this all the time. Yeah. So don't be a snob. <laughs> but I want to get back to your film school thing because they never nobody in film school ever said this is going to be on the lesson. It was always other movies. They never chose Brazil, which it I'm was, surprised. Yeah, it was. And it was mentioned a couple of times. It was brought up. But it was never something we watched in film class. We watched some very classic films, but we also watched some really more obscure films as well that weren't Brazil. I mean, I mean, obviously in film class, you always watch some some weird ass films that, you know, only the film professor ever saw because they are a bit snooty sometimes. Oh, yeah. But a bit. (laughs) Yeah, it was never on the syllabus. And I'm watching this like you can really dissect this movie and go into a whole bunch of stuff about this that can translate into any film that you would do after this. Have I ever told you, I know, have I ever said it on the podcast, have I ever told you the black and white cookie story? I've told you personally. Have I ever told it on the podcast? You have never told it on the podcast. Going into it. So my, <laughs> me and my buddy went to New York Film Academy. It's like a, it's a, thank you. First of all, stop your slow clap. <laughs> First of all, it's basically film school without film theory. We watch movies all the time. So our film theory was always us. So this was just like, this is how you do a medium shot. This is how you do a close up and all that stuff. And like a weekend, I turned to my friend. I was like, we know this already. But regardless of that, <laughs> one of our film professors comes in and we're, this is in the city in New York, comes in with a black and white cookie. But the name brand on the cookie is Joey Cookies. And he's like, he starts eating it. And he's like, oh, God, guys, you ever have you ever have one of these cookies it's called a Joey? They're so good. They're just so, and he's holding it up. And. I knew it was called a black and white cookie because I know that's a cookie that's in famous in bakeries all across the country. Right. And I and I <laughs> my friend and I are just like, does he not know that that's a cookie that you can get anywhere? Like we were so in terms of like he found something that was so good that he was so snotty about it and so snobbish about it that he was gonna hold it up and like like we were gonna be like, oh my god, I gotta get these, I gotta get these Joey's. <laughs> Anyways, and this wasn't part of a lesson or anything. This was just no. This is just this was this genuine- was wasting. Five minutes of my time. time yeah, yeah. wasting five minutes of the class time so he can tell me about a medium shot. Anyways. Exactly. He didn't have a long, long enough lesson. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think one of the reasons why I agree with you that it's forgotten is it's it's an older movie. It's 85. So you're talking it's 30, almost 35 years old. It mm-hmm. is 35 years old, pretty much. It will be in December right. in terms of its release. I don't I mean, I would assume that in film school, people are watching this. But the simple fact that you can't get Brazil. When you it's not on HBO, it's not on Showtime or anything like that, or you don't see it running on on like TNT or whatever. You can't access it on like Roku. I got it off some budget channel. That's where I got it. Um, yeah, you know it's. Well, they will say they did clean it up recently and make a special yeah, edition well, of it. Well, it's got a Criterion edition. It's spine number fifty one. It's part of the Criterion collection. So no, no, it's right, right. It's it's we're not saying anything anything that people don't already know. It's it's a classic. It's obviously something you know. But we're saying in terms of people not knowing what it is about it's about a it now gotten classic yeah, of course that's a new what is that a new uh new series forgotten classics i mean i like I it i like it call criterion we can get with them so this was your first so let's get into the movie i guess this is your first time watching it we were humming the brazil theme <laughs> before <laughs> which i should we should say is uh, ari barossa's 1939 song Aquarela, oh i said it wrong uh aquarella de brazil watercolor of brazil or brazil the arrangement that we were that's in the movie is done by Jeff Mulder or Moldar. And then Michael Kamen kind of uses it throughout the movie. But that song is a very famous song. Yeah, I had heard it way before this. Movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, it's it, you. It's actually a song that you have heard in. Give me one second because I wrote it down. You have heard this song in Wally, mm-hmm. Star Wars, The Last Jedi. I'm sorry, Mike. 
The Aviator. There's something about Mary. B movie, Mr. Peabody and Sherman, Australia. Just naming ones that you might know. So this movie, this song is all over the place. Right. It's big in Wally. Oh yeah, I th- was which kind of makes sense because Wally and Brazil have similar themes. Well, the the Orwellian, the Orwellian, yeah. yeah look, um, Gilliam talks about this movie uh, jokingly that it's called 1984 and a half, like that was the name of the the running title. But then the 1984 movie came out, and he couldn't name it that, so they they opted <laughs> for uh, Brazil. Um, so this is your first time seeing it, yes, which I brought up already two minutes ago. Yes, what? What jumped out at you that you enjoyed the most being, I guess, from whatever, from a film guy or from a movie, you know, I like movie kind of guy. Like what jumped out at you the most? The first thing I think that jumped out at me was the comedy aspect of it. Okay. The absurdity. Uh, The absurd comedy. I mean, obviously it's by one of the guys that Monty Python, but that the other Terry Gilliam movies I've seen don't necessarily have that. Like 12 Monkeys and stuff like that. I told monkeys is dark. Yes. So going into it, I didn't realize that it was a comedy. I have images in my head. that I think everybody who learns film kind of has the shots of Jonathan Price in the chamber with the baby face torture guy. That's a big time. That's a, that's a big Jacqueline symbol. got the mask on. That's a big time. Uh, uh, still that you see all the time. Yeah. Right. A lot of the things of the city, him is him with his wingsuit on. There are certain Things that the baby creatures as well. Yeah. There's certain symbols that you really recognize the stretched out faces. But I didn't realize the, Star, those. Trek, the Star Trek insurrection faces. Yeah, basically. That's what <laughs> 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 that yuck is for Star Trek insurrection. Yeah, that's a bad movie. <laughs> so. I didn't really connect that with comedy. Obvious for obvious reasons. <laughs> so I was surprised how much comedy there kind of was in it, how much slapstick and absurd absurdity there is in this film which you which you kind of need that levity really helps the movie i think mm-hmm. uh, obviously it didn't help it get its budget back <laughs> but i was very surprised about the humor throughout the movie i was very surprised about robert de niro's character i didn't even realize he was in it for the most part i had forgotten and then as i see him listed toward the beginning of the cast obviously because he's the bigger name mm-hmm. i thought maybe he'd be a bigger part in the movie but he's not as big a part as i thought he was well, he wanted to play jacqueline Lowry's friend, but it, he had already Gilliam already promised the role to Michael Palin, but De Niro still wanted to be in the movie, mm-hmm. so he offered him Harry uh, Tuttle. I think Tuttle is a much better role for Robert De Niro because it's so against his type. I think playing Sam's friend would just be all right. It's Bobby De Niro in a movie. It's it's all right. He's got second billing though. That's you get you get him as Harry Tuttle. He's actually funny. He's got a personality that's unlike so many other characters he plays, and I really enjoy that he's this this repairman superhero in this dystopian future that yeah. I just really enjoy. I think that is, I think he lucked out and got a much better role. Do you think he thinks that? I hope he thinks that now because his role's fucking awesome. <laughs> if I couldn't be Sam Lowry, I would want to be Harry. You'd want to be Harry. Tell you wouldn't want to be Jack Lent. No, I don't like his, his character. Like I, I don't like his character. He's what like don't you lame, like about it? He's like a lame version of the dentist from little shop of horrors. He doesn't have enough to do. Maybe he's got in the, one of the million alternate editions that IMDb lists. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he's got more stuff. I like that he's got this PTSD from all the torture he does. Right. This like, I don't want to do it upsetness to him. But for the most part, his character is pretty straight laced. It's pretty straightforward. He's just a, a cog in the machine. Yeah. 
I think Harry Tuttle is so much more interesting. His lines are more fun. He's such a ridiculous character that I really enjoy Harry Tuttle. I think Harry Tuttle, every scene he's in, it's like that brief bit of this levity that that stops these these scenes of Sam's life kind of evolving around him. Right. So this movie has a lot of stories behind it, around it, you know, putting it together, the the actual shooting of the movie and then Gilliam fighting for uh, his cut. Mm-hmm. And you talk about De Niro and his lines that De Niro. So this movie took 20 weeks. to It was a 20 week shoot, but it took my, nine months to finish filming. And usually like, you know, De Niro was supposed to only work one week. He went two weeks because De Niro, even though most most actors probably get like what six or seven takes, eight or nine takes, depending. De Niro insisted on twenty five to thirty takes, for and he still forgot his lines. Now, grant, <laughs> granted, I'm reading these notes online, so who knows if they're right? But still, so I guess it was a little bit of a, a struggle uh, in terms with with De Niro, be, just because he likes to do a lot of research, likes to ask a lot of questions, he likes to just get in depth to his character, which I, I understand. I understand that process. I, but I can understand how it, it may be frustrating for a director to just kind of like keep the flow going. But you got to sit here and do one scene for 30 takes. I get that. You want to have a happy medium there. Let's get that director that likes doing those 30 takes. Like Fincher? Like Fincher, like uh, Kubrick. Yep. Jinx. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the production in and of itself was difficult. And the dream sequences that you were talking about where he's where Sam is flying. He's like he's, he looks like David Bowie. And or not David Bowie. What was the alter? What uh, Ziggy Stardust? Yeah. Um. And he's uh flying, and then he saves her, and then he's you know it's kind of supposed to mimic what's supposed to happen in the story. That was originally supposed to be the opening. It was just going to be that whole thing was the opening, but it was way too long. Yeah. So they used it to fill between the chapters, which I, makes a lot more sense. I much prefer that. Yeah. I, I you that was had to be like 10, 15 minutes. I can I can see that being the opening because of the absurdness of it. Right. I can see that like suddenly cutting and you thinking it's one movie and then it's another. But yeah, you're right. It's it's not a it's it's more interesting cut up. If I'm watching that straight up as as the film, mm-hmm. it's it's not very good. Right. So we already talked about how this movie's, you know, wildly popular within the filmmaking world. It was nominated for two Oscars, one for best writing and one for best art direction. Yes. Didn't win, but it was nominated. Um so but what makes me laugh is I wanted to, I wanted to tell a story about it. It won. It's not swept, but it won like you know, best picture, best writing, best. I think best director for like the L.A. film critics. Mm-hmm. And part of that was Gilliam was fighting with Universal for his cut of the movie. They didn't they didn't like that. The movie was a downer. They wanted it a happy ending. Typical, typical stuff. They, he wanted it his way. They wanted it a certain way. They were probably scared that it wasn't going to do money. It was going to do well, which it didn't. But it was critically acclaimed. So right. that's the kind of bomb I guess you want, one that gets all the awards kind of thing. Yeah. So USC, a film class in USC, asked him if he would, you know, come to come talk to them. And, and he said, listen, I'll bring an audiovisual aid. He's gonna, that's what he called it. But he was bringing his cut of the movie. Yeah. So they find out. Universal says, you're not going to show this. So basically, he's bringing the movie. Everybody, they advertise that, oh, crap, we're going to watch the movie. You're going to watch the movie. Universal finds out. Universal says, you're not doing that. You can't do that. And then he's like, no, no, no. I'm just going to bring a clip. And they're like, okay, fine. Then he showed the entire movie, but he showed it for like the next two weeks. He kept showing the movie. And the uh, film critics saw, that's how the film critics saw it during that. And then that's how he got awarded all the, the best picture of the year award and stuff like that. So, and that's how he Universal was cut. like, yeah, you was like, fine, <laughs> fine, go ahead. You can release it. 
which I think is funny. So, which he's kind of being his own Sam Lowry in this world, but actually having a happy ending, not beating the system, not Sam Lowry, who would goes insane. Um, not to spoil anything for anybody, but, uh, Ooh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so the, I just thought that was funny that it's kind of like mimicking in that regard. And this movie has, is on many lists. It's on, it's, you know, the top 100 movies you got to watch before you die, like that kind of stuff. In a, in a 2017 poll of 150 actors, directors, writers, producers, and critics for Time Out magazine, Brazil was ranked the 24th best British film ever of all time. This was two years ago. Do you know what number one was? British films? Yeah. No clue. Don't look now. So Donald Sutherland. All right. Never seen it. Exit. Nope. Never even heard of it. Number two is The Third Man. Number 10 is Trainspotting. Have you seen Trainspotting 2 yet? Not yet. Yeah. I know it's streaming on somewhere. I almost watched it a, a few weeks ago. It's it's streaming now. No, it's not. It's not streaming. It's not? No, because I went on there and I had to pay for it. Then it's going to be streaming sometime soon. Well, I need to see it. Maybe I, it's on HBO Max. Well, that was number 10. Trainspotting. Okay. 19 was Barry Lyndon. Just to give you Nate, some, some movies you may remember. Number 20 is Life of Brian, which is a Monty Python movie. Mm-hmm. Number 23 is the Lawrence of Arabia. 28 was the Wicker Man, the 70s Wicker Man, not the Nicolas Cage beating up people That's and bears. That high up. Or getting beat up by, but what? Even the original Wicker Man, is that high up? Wicker, well, the original's good. The original's good. It's, I don't know if it's that high. It's not higher than Brazil. Well, no, it's not. Brazil's 24. Didn't you say Wicker Man was 20? 28. Oh, okay. Never mind. No, I'm no, fine no. with that. <laughs> <laughs> as long as... <laughs> All right. Brazil's <laughs> definitely better than Wicker Man. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. Um... One of the things that um, one of the things that I enjoyed, I don't well, I shouldn't say I enjoyed one of the things I didn't enjoy or or didn't understand until I read about the movie was uh, Jill Layton's character. Mm-hmm. She's not really in it that much. And she's his dream, quote unquote, dream girl. Right. And he sees her and then and, and then she like she doesn't really have like she's just there. And then I read that she had a lot more scenes mm-hmm. and Gilliam wasn't a big fan of her acting choices, I guess. Didn't really like her. Okay. Uh, so he cut a lot of it down. But, but don't cast her. <laughs> but that's the thing. It's, it, she's such an integral part of Sam Lowry's quest. And she's really nothing more than an idol for him to get. And then once he gets, he loses. Her choices are also really, if he doesn't like her acting choices, the choices he kept and the way he keeps her story also doesn't make much sense to me. Okay. Her, I don't trust you. I don't like you. Get out of my car thing. And then he's keep, he's on the truck. Keeps coming back. I love you. Trust me. Blah, oh, blah, blah. That whole blah. thing, yeah. And then she's like, obviously, you're a creeper. Get away from me. I get that. Right. And then she flings him out the front of the car. Thinks... I guess she thinks she, she killed, killed him. She ran him over. And then yeah. she sees him and it's like, oh, thank God. Oh, I love you. Yeah. And then she hates him again. Yeah. And then she wants to get away from him. He does all this stuff that kind of ruins her. And then she's still yeah. into him. And, and the whole relationship doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I know it's a nonsensical movie, but. That's what I was going to say. When you, when Personal you, relationships yeah. still should make sense. Well, when you have a subversive movie like this, where everything is just off the wall, it's, it's surrealistic it's you know it's a comedy nothing nothing makes sense it's 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 a comment on life it's a comment on the real world and reality mm-hmm. it's very difficult to have moments in this where you're trying for real emotion because you you've already just watched 
we're like what 45 minutes into the movie at this point an hour into the movie you're, we might you, be almost an hour yeah you've watched a movie for this for so long that is telling you the world stinks the world is crazy you know look this is where we're going uh you know why should we buy into any kind of love story or any kind of emotional connection between characters you know what gets me though is that's the one grounded thing about the film is sam's need to get this woman of his dreams you're brought into this idea that i'm sorry you're brought into this idea that this is our connection this is our our grounding point because even a film as absurd as this or monty python is their their quest for the grail you need that one storyline that's like this is what the movie's about sam's quest for this girl his dream girl Mm -hmm. is that what the movie's about so when you finally meet her that still needs to be your through line this Mm -hmm. relationship and i don't buy it because i don't understand her and I think maybe if we had more scenes with her, I would understand what she does, what she's doing. I understand Sam's job. I understand he's in an absurd world, but they are still characters. They are still real characters. He is still real until he loses his mind. But that's at the very end. Even when even when he takes her back to his mom's house and they they actually have, they have that they get together, have sex. And then like the next morning, she's like dressed in the bow and she's like, open it. and it, all that felt not wrong, but just didn't felt off, you know. And then obviously, because it's supposed to be like his happy, he's at his happiest moment, and then they take when she's dressed in a bow. Remember? Oh, see, here we go. See, now we watch different versions. Yeah. Uh, well, I when did he? Well, okay, in your version, mm-hmm. when did the guys come in and grab him and take him back and and arrest him? So he reaches her. She's got the wig on. Right. That after he has deleted her. This from is the, the next day. He goes, you're dead. Yep. She goes, oh, yeah. How about some necrophilia or whatever? Right. right. <laughs> he jumps on the bed. They make love. Right, right, so right. So you're supposed to imagine. He has a little, there's a little bit of a dream sequence. Pan out. It's morning. They're under the covers. And all of a sudden, people rush in. Okay, no. Got so, nothing from them the next so day. So what, in my version, so I watched the international version, which is maybe 10 more minutes. Yeah. He wakes up. And okay. He's, and he's got the wig in his hand. And because then you realize, okay, she wore the wig. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But she's kneeling on the bed and she's naked and she's wearing a big pink bow over her chest. And, okay. And she's like, I got you something. I'll open it up. And he unwraps the ribbon and then she gets into bed with it. And then the, they, they, they bust in. Oh, okay. So that happened in mine. Okay. Yeah. I don't get that. They, from what I get, they woke them, them crashing through the building, woke, woke them up. up. No, yeah. No, they were, they were to get, they were about to have sex again okay. and then they busted in. Um, but my point was that like that just felt, that whole thing just was kind of like, I understand you're trying to say, oh, we're at our happiest and and all that stuff. I, I, but it was just kind of, I don't know. It, it, again, I think I go back to my point where the entire thing is subversive and surrealistic and just nothing is, it's all a comment on, you know, the world we're living in. And, and it's very, you know, cynical and sarcastic. Really can't, it's really tough for me to go into like, oh, he got her like, I, you know what I mean? Like, right. You're almost waiting for the shooter drop or you're almost expecting. Well, a bad I, ending. I also knew there were at least in my cut 17 minutes and some odd seconds. And I was like, after they uh, jump into bed together and you fade out to his dream, I'm like, and they have this. I don't know if you had that when the dream comes in, the bed top kind of fades into this iris, almost like it's closing. Maybe. But then you fade back in to the next day and they jump through the window. But I was like, as the iris is closing, I'm like, this can't be the end. There's 17. There's got to be like 20 more minutes to this movie. Mm-hmm. Something's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I also knew that that iconic baby face scene hadn't, hadn't happened hadn't yet. Happened so I'm like, yeah. oh man, this isn't going to happen. 
Now I'm wondering. Well, what, let me ask you this about your cut. Yeah, thing, I'm wondering I'm like curious. what you saw and what I. Oh, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. I when they know. capture her in that same scene. Yeah. When they bust through the window, it fades to black, and you hear gunfire like they kill her. Yes. Does that happen in your? Yes. Well? Okay. And then he, and then he's in the. Then um, they wake up padded in the walls. No. See, oh, no. Okay. Then he's in pet. Okay. So it goes to, he's, he's in the the burlap sack or whatever the the and he's you know what I mean and okay. and he's in these rooms. He keeps talking to all these bureaucrats. They keep changing and different bureaucrats are telling him that you know, uh, he's gonna get charged for the interrogation. You didn't get any of that. I get no. He's strapped no. in the chair right after the, the right. He, he wakes up. He's getting strapped in the chair, telling him it's a mistake or whatever nope, and nope, that stuff. No. And the policeman. The guard is right there going something about it's going to affect your credit, it's gonna affect yeah, your credit which is a funny away. line. That's it. That's all I got. It's a funny line. But but what? OK, so what I got and before that was it was basically what that was. All they were telling like, oh, if you sign here, this is your insurance form. And he's talking like four or five different bureaucrats. He's in a padded cell. He's in a padded room. OK. And the uh, camera, Mr. Um, who's the one in the wheelchair? Mr. Helpman, Jeremiah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. He's in there dressed as Santa. And he's trying to tell him, oh, just think of your mother. Remember, you know, think of, you know, um, and he tells him, uh, what does he say? He said, he's like, tell her she, she's there. She's, she's not Jill. I know I said, I, I was for Jill. Tell her she's, she's like, oh, Jill's been, Jill's dead. She's deleted. She's like, no, 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 I did that. I did that. He's like, funny thing is she was, she was uh, deleted twice. <laughs> like, so then, you, yeah. then he realizes that he, she's dead. Then it goes to that scene in the. Okay. So there's a, there's like so I'm, maybe my stuff was all towards the end. So there's a little bit more stuff at yeah, the end. Yeah, it sounds there. like a lot. Yeah, end wise. Well, I want to go back to what you're talking about in terms of when you thought Lowry was grounded in like reality, like what with her. Mm-hmm. And and for me, I actually thought he was more. I felt like the moments where Sam Lowry was, quote unquote, one of us, or uh, you know, like the audience, or just right. somebody who's thinking differently than everyone else. His scenes with Kurtzman in the beginning when Kurtzman calls him in because he's obviously uh, played by Ian Holm who's who's obviously just kind of like at his job. He's inept <laughs> and he's a cog, but like he just like he just doesn't want to get in trouble. He's all concerned about getting sacked or bagged or whatever they called it. Right. And he calls him in and Lowry just fixes, oh, I'll just do it for you. Just sign the check and he wouldn't sign the check. I'll just do it. I'll sign the check. Like when he fakes the bottle check. Yep. Because this whole thing starts where they're going to, they want to go arrest Harry Tuttle, but somebody hits a bug and it falls into the printer and it, it messes up the name and it's Harry and it's Buttle. One form, yeah. Right. And they kidnap the wrong guy. He dies in interrogation. So it's just, they're trying to cover it up. It's a mistake. But this is how this whole thing starts. So we, they have a refund check that he's supposed to send out, but Kirsten doesn't, doesn't want to sign it. So, we, so uh, Lowry forges, forges it and all that stuff. And then you find out Kirsten forges his signature later on on something. But I thought his moments with Kurtzman was more like he's that's how that's how he is different from everyone else. He's not a he's a different cog in the system kind of thing, for right. lack of a better term, um, more so than the stuff like I thought, like when he was going after Jill Layton. That just seemed more fantastical, that seemed like more. Not faded in, 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 in that regard, you know, you know what I mean? I think I get where you're coming from, but I still think he's your grounded character that you're following. No, I know. I'm saying his basis for being grounded. I found I, I found more with his interactions in, with Kurtzman than I did with his 
pursuit of Jill Layton. Well, it's certainly a dogged kind of crazy, yeah. mad pursuit. Absolutely going after your dream. Yeah. No, no. I've, yeah, of course. And but, he does. He does come off crazy when he's trying to. Oh, absolutely. No, I'm not saying he doesn't. Yeah. But I'm saying his storyline is your he's your grounded character of like, he's this guy that has this dream. He's not just he's not an absurd character in terms of the weirdness stuff that happens. He's not your Tuttle or your central services characters. He's right. this person that we're following. So his storyline needs to be more, I guess, when you're in the real world version, not his dream version, it should be a little bit more complete. And right. I should understand it a little bit better. Well, what do you think about the central services guys? Like why, why they're there, what they're trying to say, are they just kind of, it's funny moments, that kind of thing. The whole, you, you saw the one where they swapped the sewage and the AC, right? Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Which is disgusting. It's gross. Oh. There's a lot of chunks in those. They did a good job good. making that look real. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I liked, I thought they were very funny. Yeah. I really enjoy the, the segments with them. They're definitely a villain for Harry Tuttle to go up against, mm -hmm. but I think they're kind of, it's odd that they come out when they already say they're not going to come out, that the emergency services don't happen. All right. But then they come out. I was like, but that's not supposed to be them. So at first I was kind of confused. Mm -hmm. So are they rogue central services people or are they just there because they know Harry Tuttle's there and they're looking for Harry Tuttle? Right. I was a little confused about that, but they're a little absurd. So I was kind of okay with their presence. Well, Sam Lowry was arrested for why? What, what was the reason why they abducted him? Because he, he got, when, went into the, when at the end, at the very end. Yeah. At that point he had already crashed through the police barricade. He killed police officers in the chase and was aiding and abetting. Like at that point, you know, he's aiding and abetting this person of interest okay. that they want to destroy and they want to kill her because she's trying to investigate the mistake of killing the wrong of killing Buttle. Right. Well, that's what they wanted to get initially, but then he deleted her. So, but they were there for him, not her. Because at that point, I think he's aiding and abetting. So right. At that point, right. They, okay. At that point they figure, okay, well he's got to go now too. Well, I was, so I was wondering if like the, the stuff at central services where they had somebody come out and, and fix the, the Tuttle come out and somebody, you know, wasn't supposed to fix the AC right. unit. He did. That's kind of like the beginning of the end kind of thing where he, that's why he was. I think that put him on notice. Right. But I think that right. was more central services working against him to just kind of screw him over. Why they took right. apart the wires and kicked him out of his own place. Right. Right. I think that's just kind of backstabbing. Less mm -hmm. big time arrest. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think this movie has the same effect on filmmaking students now? than it did maybe 10, 20 years ago when it first came out. Like, do you think it's, do you think it's dated? Do you think it's, it's concepts are something that people can't, when I say concepts, I don't mean story concepts. Yes. But also filmmaking concepts. Do you think it's dated? Do you think it's, it can't like if I had a, if I was running a film class in 2022, I, like I leave forgotten cinema Butler to go become a film professor and which is a very real possibility. <laughs> and I, and I show this movie. Do you, th what do you think is the reaction of 18, 19, 20 year old filmmaking students? I think you absolutely show this movie. I'm really shocked. I was never shown this movie. Right. I you think should really call your school. <laughs> I think this is absolutely something you show. I think, I think this still holds up. It's still held up for me. I think the themes, a, the themes, like you said, it's not so much the themes. The themes are universal. They'll always be right. You know, that Orwellian 1984 thing, we're, we're still in there. Okay. I love the we We'll always be there. No, ma no matter even if we're in 1984 in terms of we're experiencing the Orwellian stuff. Yeah. It, we're always going to get the, well, this is what's coming. So. So. 
I think that's still there, but I think everything still holds up in this movie because of the absurdity of it. I don't what's, think what's the ta- I don't mean to interrupt you. And I'm sorry. Right. What's the takeaway that you're giving students? Why show this to students? The cinematography is absolutely okay. great. I love the use of perspective. I love the use of angles. I love the use of scale in terms of making things seem just it's set design. Just in, like the art direction was awarded because it should be because some of the sets are just the angles are just something's wrong with them. Something's too small or things are too big or things are too skewed. Nothing is quite right in this world and the pipes go everywhere. And it's just like you get in this regular apartment, but you get these ducts, which starts at the beginning. Get, get the right colored duct for your room. <laughs> and just that blows up. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's everywhere in, in these sets. And it's just like, even if it's in the background, it's just, that's wrong. Right. And you know, something's off. And none of that, that's all practical. It's its still real. I don't think there's anything in this film. The dream sequences all have these creatures, but it's a dream, so it's okay. Mm-hmm. And because they're all practical, just something seems off about them. Mm-hmm. The lighting, the acting, the absurdity of it, it all works so well, In even in today. And the version I saw is still, like I saw that 4K or the the HD right. remaster of it looks fantastic oh it does so this isn't something that students will watch and go oh man this is so old because the story still resonates right the comedy is still good it's not overly done because you don't see too much this is very monty python in terms of a lot of the obscure comedy and stuff like that which isn't really done that much anymore so you still get this kind of comedy that isn't overdone and you get this story that well is overdone. There's a lot of Orwellian type stuff that people go with and make movies about and all that. And obviously some scenes are so iconic, but you can go like, there's so many of these big rooms with that one single character sitting in it. And you could even say that uh, clockwork orange and stuff like that also has similar scenes, but they're still like, those were like some of the first ones. And you can still say, this is where they got it from. This is the progenitor. Don't copy those movies because now you have a copy. copy. <laughs> right. Look to that when you're trying to create something that's similar or, you know, when you're trying to come up with an idea. So much of this film, the creepy baby mask, you could even say like the purge with the creepy baby mask. It all comes back to, yeah. Yeah. to Brazil. And it's just look at the history of film. Look at all these films you like. A lot of this can come and has come from Brazil. Mm hmm. Uh, yeah, like uh, right off the top of my head, I can think of, and I know it was, so I know that like uh, the Coen Brothers movie, Hudsucker Proxy has some inspiration from Brazil and there's tons of other movies that, that took some, ins- like Dark City, uh, took inspiration from the style City, of yeah. Yeah, how, how Brazil was. I, 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 I agree. Freaking Wally. <laughs> yeah. And I agree with you. I think that this is a movie, I mean, it was made for $15 million in 1985. Okay. Now that's about 36 million now. Um, I know because I just looked that up. Nice. Uh, well, Bob Butler was on his monologue, which you know I was I was appreciative of. <laughs> <laughs> but but even now, thirty six million dollars now, what's in that movie is impressive for that. I mean, granted, they're using a lot of models and they're using a lot of forced perspectives, as you said, especially like when when that goes down the uh, the wire. You're just like, I know that's not real, but oh, you're, yeah, but you're like, I'm okay with that. Exactly. <laughs> like that. That's I don't know for some reason some. Practical effects, I really dig. I love the Model City, and they're yeah. going th- when he's driving oh, to when deliver the check. When they're busting up, no, when, when they're driving, when he's driving to deliver the check, right? And you go down the model, but then you get the next shot, and it is a model, and it's some oh, drunk dude. Yeah, on the that's glass another. That's another it. famous uh, still from the movie where he's looking at over the over the city nuclear reactor cloud. They're painted like clouds and stuff yep. like that. Yeah, that's another famous uh, still. 
Um, I like when they're going down the highway and the billboards, billboards block, blocking like the desolation. Yeah. But regardless of all that, all of that stuff, the, the practical effects for $15 million, that is very impressive. And I think if anything, a takeaway for a lot of people that you're showing this to or a film class, you're showing right. it to or new, new emerging filmmakers as they're known as, um, <laughs> is, is what you can do with what money. Like, you know, even if, you know, you can do, I'm sorry, but you can make a really great movie for a million dollars. You can, you, right. you, you know, that you just have to have that kind of ability. And then talking last week about the Bloomhouse movies. Right. Right. About, you know, small budgets and good ideas. Yeah. But yeah, this does a lot with art direction. It's yeah. That, that's the thing about movies in the eighties and the seventies. We talked about it when we did silent running a little bit is, is these big budget ideas on a very small budget and yeah. just being able to figure out, taking the time to think out how your production is going to be. Right. Which is something I, I learned in school too, is, is your pre-production should be, the bulk of your production yeah to really think about and plan to make and especially when you're doing a movie like this i want to make a world absolutely the more pre-production you do it makes your production go a lot smoother Mm -hmm. um stuff's going to happen during productions like you're going to have a problem somewhere along the line something's not going to work so location is going to drop so that's fine, but your pre-production is okay. If this happens, we do this. If this happens, we do this. Okay. If this happens, we do this. I want to do this. Let's make sure we can do this. Like it's all planning. You got to plan all that ahead of time. If I'm a filmmaker, now granted, I'm clearly coming from a place where I have not made a big time, you know, studio film. You haven't been given millions yet. Not yet. Well, we're working on. But I, <laughs> if I'm, if I'm a filmmaker, even if I'm emerging or if I'm somebody who makes movies, and I'm and I'm sitting down with a studio and they're saying, listen. We'll give you two million dollars to do to do this movie. Can you do for two? And I'd be like, let I'll try. Let's let's go for it. If you're letting me go to do for two million dollars, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm there because I not because like they're not gonna they're not gonna tell me what to do. Not not because of that. Because it's the challenge. Because it's there is so much creativity when you don't have everything at your fingertips, and I it, it forces you to be creative and forces you to be smart and try to use your quote unquote talent to tell your story. I'm when you have all the tools and the bells and whistles to do something and you you, you rely on that like a crutch and then you make crap movies. Go ahead. Go ahead. Like Star Wars. I knew it was coming. <laughs> I knew it was coming. I was going to let you do it. The whole time I'm thinking, you know, George Lucas worked with his ILM team, you know, building the special effects team up right. with Baker and all them and, and being like, all right, this is our budget. Mm-hmm. Let's make this Death Star. Let's take right. apart a shit ton of models right. and just make this track and all of that. It's just, it's the creative ideas of working around it because they had a universe in mind. They created their art. They're like, this is what we want to do. Mm-hmm. So even when they had their setback, even when they had the budget or it got cut, they still had a very clear idea of the world around them, what their universe was going to be. When you're making a picture like that, you need, or even a regular comedy or drama or when you did Puzzle Maker Son and you had to, Make a new location, get it all set. Oh, right. Yep. You have your idea of your story. You have your idea of what this universe is, and you're able to think on the fly and, and fix these ideas. Yeah. And that's what makes a great movie. It's yes. not the budget. It's the creative, it's the creative idea in the world around it. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, just on the Star Wars tip, let's say George Lucas made Brazil the way it is. Okay. He's going back and changing all the effects. You know what I mean? He's changing like different things. He's he's at you know he's going back and, and adjusting it. You know you're going to see countless editions of Brazil. It, that's good. That that goes against what the movie kind of stands for, almost, right? I don't think if George Lucas made 
Brazil, he'd do that. Okay. I don't think Brazil has any real moments where you would need that. Okay. I mean, I, you can make an argument that Star Wars doesn't need that either, but I don't think there's anything in Brazil that you would really enhance computer computerized. Maybe the what the samurai. I'm just saying he would. He would. He would make adjustments. He hasn't done. He hasn't gone back and changed American graffiti. Oh, maybe he doesn't own it. I don't know. I'm just. I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure. We're down. A, we're down a. We're down a path. Apologies. Um. I mean, I. Do you want to add anything else? Uh, I can check my notes. I don't want to bring it. <laughs> I, it's. If you haven't seen it, you should. If you, well, I find funny. It's it's kind of based on 1984, but Gilliam never read the book. At that before doing this movie, so it's kind of not. I I'll guess. tell you, as soon as it started, I got a big. You get this. Obviously, it's got the 1984 stuff, but you can tell that it was supposed to be like 1984 and a half at the very beginning right. after the duct advertisement store explodes. Which, by the way, I did not like that shot. Oh, why? The guy with the shopping cart disappears. Like they, they obviously he's not getting exploded, <laughs> but he disappears. Okay. In the cut, so he doesn't reach the other side of frame or move. I see. I he didn't just kind I of changes. I didn't catch that. Where in other scenes they have what's clearly models at least going across the screen. This guy mm-hmm. just kind of cuts. And there's another scene about one hour forty minutes. There's a cut, at least in my edition. There's a cut when Sam is talking to Jack in his office, and he's like, "Let me, let me have the file." Yeah, I have that. And Jack goes to his desk. And they're they're very very much in the same position. They're not. He says the word Tuttle. It cuts, and it's a different take. Okay. But they're in such similar positions. It's almost like nothing. Oh, I don't remember nothing that. Nothing moved, and it's just. Uh, uh. And mm. it's just like wow. Did they cut? And I had to rewind it, go back, and they. It jumps in 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 your in that version when they're in the room together. Does he stop himself and say he says? But uh, Tuttle, but then he says Buttle, like he kind of like corrects himself. Oh, yeah, he does, yeah. Okay, then I don't, I don't remember that part. It's not at that part. point. He just oh, says yeah. the word Tuttle. They go into another sentence, but they've definitely cut it. And I guess he liked the other take better. And he saw maybe he's putting the negatives together and saw they're in the same position and just cut and put. Oh, the I next didn't catch in. that. Did, his daughter's in the room. Did you get that? Yeah. Okay, man. I don't, I don't know, man. That's I, just I an interesting cut, and it also yeah. happens later during uh, the fake escape. <laughs> Yeah, I know. So at the end of the movie, because it, it's a it's a movie where the main character has gone insane, but he had he it, it's a happy ending for him, but it's still a downer ending in real life. You know what I mean? Like he's right. he's already kind of going that way, too. And I think the torture just yeah. brings him over the edge because you get that scene in the mall where he's about to fight the the cops right. to save his woman. And he's just like with the arm. And then he's he's not even thinking about fighting the police anymore he's got this now he's in his mind mm-hmm. so you can already tell he was gonna go that way yeah yeah and you're thinking the whole time the whole time during the escape i'm like okay so they are sacrificing eight guys to save sam why i mean i know harry's well, a good guy well but then harry disappears in the pile of paperwork that's the thing yeah. and then you get they all escape and then he's got this device where he's gonna blow up the building and i'm just like how do you wired the how do you wire the whole place with dynamite? And then they're escaping, and all of a sudden Harry's getting the papers all around him, and he disappears in the paper. I'm like, oh snap! I don't that I want to add any kind of logical storytelling aspect to this, but like they never really go into why things are getting bombed. It's just happening, and you're supposed to assume that it's Tuttle and it's terrorists, but you never see them, and it's right. You know what I mean? So. And green and and Jill Layton's not a terrorist. She's just you find out. Yeah, right. He, he so, um, yeah. 
that was it. I, but again, I don't want to attach any kind of logic to it, like I said, because it's not. It's, a, it's no. an illogical movie. There's that's a lot fine. of symbolism, especially yeah. in that last bit where he's dreaming. Right, right. A lot of stuff about the paperwork overtaking everybody. The mother stuff in the funeral. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, he's oh, just back. She looks young and she's when, Danny. Yeah. And she's like so young. And I was like, oh, there's a bit of an edible thing. <laughs> I thought when she had his his mother's, she's wearing his mother's wig. Yeah. And he's like so turned on. I'm like, Ugh. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, when the when the coffin oh, when it's over and it's all like jelly and ugh, all the extra gross. <laughs> yep, yep. All right, so you know, catch it, watch it. You should if you haven't. I'm sure you have. Thanks for I don't know. I guess kind of sharing it with us again. If anyone's interested <laughs> in, um, because I'm interested, and I might I might either pick it up or not. If anyone's interested in learning more about, I guess Universal versus Terry and Gilliam. There's a book out by Jack Matthews called The Battle of Brazil, Terry Gilliam v. Universal Pictures and the Fight to the Final Cut. That's a fun book. It is. I might pick that. I want to say, I'm, I'm, I, I, I saw that and I was just like, because it's tough. I know we're, we only spent about 45 minutes to an hour talking about a movie. But they spent, you know, a year there on is, movies. And I'm sure there, yeah, there is probably loads of, of stuff to go through in terms of how getting the final cut. I'm curious just like what exactly happened. I don't, I'm not going to sit here and talk about it for two and a half hours. It's just, you know, behind the scenes stuff that you don't ever really you'd like to dive into, but you can't really do it when we're just talking about the movie here. Here's the thing. On IMDb, I've never seen such a long list of alternate versions. Oh, I know. On, on the thing that so many dots, so many different things mm-hmm. that even you or I didn't see. I mean, I know that one version, according to this, they have so many different times. I think the international version that I watched is the version that is considered the final one. The 142 minute yes. director's cut. Yeah. Uh, wait a minute. No, because mine was 227. I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you did. I have a 132 minute version, yeah. which is still not quite mine because mine was 134. No. Yeah, mine's 134. Okay. So mine's still a little different. <laughs> then there's a 94 minute edited version. Oh, God, that must be awful. What they must have cut out what all the dreams? I don't understand. That, that must movie be an awful version. It's probably unwatchable. It's probably something made for TV. Okay. But oh man. I have a hundred and the one I watched was uh a hundred and forty-three minutes. So that was the one. one longer, yeah, yeah, that's it. So, so that's the version. So that, that's line, probably yeah. the version that you want to watch. And if you if you so look for the 142, 143 <laughs> minute version. That's it. That's all we're done. We're done. That's it. And and, and the damn podcast. No, I'm kidding. Um so why don't you, like, what do we, what do we do here now? <laughs> I always forget how we end. I always know how we begin, but I always forget how we end. So. You know, what's funny as I'm looking at this now and we just talked about the cuts and we just talked about, you know, the versions and the runtime that I talked at the beginning of this whole podcast was 132 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that's not even the version I watched. I watched the 143 version. So we always call it Brazil. It's a runtime of 143 minutes. Right at <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, that's tough. With the, that's that's another thing that that's with this type of movie in terms of catching, catching on with people or catching on with audience. It's like you don't know which cut to watch. That's like Blade Runner. There's yeah, a thousand yeah. Blade Runners. Yeah, it's that's really tough. I, I don't even know if I've ever. I don't know if I've ever watched the the one that I'm supposed to watch. I've never watched the theatrical cut because the first one I ever watched was my father's director's cut DVD, yeah. and now I own the final cut Blu-ray. That's, that, I think that, it's called. That, that's that's unfair to an audience. Like, I get it. You want to have your version out there, but do we need six? I think you should have two versions of a film. Yeah, the theatrical cut should be whatever the studio wants. Right. 
And then when you get your Blu-ray or your DVD or your digital version, yeah. you should get two versions. Yeah. Theatrical and director's. There you go. And you're done. Done Done and done. Don't Why not? Need, you don't need eight cuts. You don't. It gets a little bit too much. You, you have one shot to make a movie. Okay. Maybe you have a second shot to edit it the way you want to edit it, but move on to another movie. Like, get out of here. Like, stop, stop doing the same movie over and over again. Even that, George Lucas doesn't have eight. You know, he's cleaned it up and or done whatever, but he doesn't have eight different, like, versions where it's like, this completely changes Return of the Jedi. Those are called cash grabs, Butler. Well, exactly. <laughs> but he doesn't go back and go, and I've added this one scene where Darth Vader all of a sudden is Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, he did. He added a scene where uh, I put the scene in there where Jabba's walking with uh, uh, Han. Well, the only reason he cut that out is because he knew he, he couldn't Jabba do that. something else. Yeah. Uh, but Which I'm fine with. I hear you. Because that doesn't change the movie. Yeah. But there's some stuff in Blade Runner. I'm sure there's stuff. There's that last scene in Brazil completely changed. The, yeah, I know. Changes the I really, I wish you kind of saw that. I, I, I'm curious now. Like what ex- that's that does that does affect the ending because it just goes to the end. Yeah. And there's stuff way before that. Interesting. Maybe you can check that out on YouTube. Maybe I can find a clip of that. Oh, you should. Yeah. Clip, yeah. You know what else you can check out? ForgottenCinemaPodcast.com. That's true. You can find all our episodes past and present on there as well as our affiliate links. Right. Yes. Yeah. So please, if you want to buy blades and uh, discount mugs and you want to purchase Brazil, the 48th edition. On Amazon, go to the affiliate link for Forgotten Cinema Podcast. Click on affiliates and go through that link, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll get some money. That's right. So we have we're going to put affiliate links. I imagine on all the blog posts that are <laughs> what on, that are <laughs> that are representative, like links to Amazon from we like, uh, representative uh, it, of the sure, movies we watch. Sure, I'll go back and do but that. Also, go on an affiliates page if you get anything off of the site. If you're interested, we'll get a little bit of cheddar from that. In all well. in all seriousness, what, using the affiliates. And using the links for the affiliates is a way to support us. And right. no one's saying go buy the movie. But if you listen to this episode, you're like, oh, I really want to go buy this movie because these guys are talking about it. Using the affiliate link is a way to support us. I will say if you buy pretty much any movie we've done on the show and you love film and you don't own Brazil yet. Yeah. You should probably use the affiliate link to get that. Well, I should tell you about that. I don't own Brazil. So maybe I, I don't either. And I'm thinking about getting now. because <laughs> Like you said, you should watch it more than once. Yeah, you need and to. I'm interested to see what special features might be on. Well, I would then I would look for a Criterion Collection, That's spine true, yeah. number fifty one, and you can get it right there. It's done, done, and done. Nice. Join us next week. Um, we will be talking about a John Dahl movie that I like. That is actually I wouldn't say a compendium, but it's a movie that I always group with Red Rock West, which we did in season one. Correct. It's called The Last Seduction. It stars Linda Fiorentino. It's actually the movie that kind of made Linda Fiorentino uh, I don't want to say made her a star but put her in in kind of I think it got her MIB and Men in Black so because that was it was before that so it's uh, Last Seduction it's a little noir movie which I enjoy from the 90s which probably means we can't find it anywhere that's right it's one of the first movies you put on the list it, it was we got some we got some old we do. top of the list movies we're trying we, we're doing the, we're doing the movies that made us start the podcast So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. I am Mike Field. I'm Mike Butler. And this has been Forgotten Cinema. Mike, here's your receipt, and this is my receipt for your receipt. Can you sign here, here, and here? A little bit harder this time.